from New York, this is Democracy Now! We found evidence that Saudi border guards have used explosive weapons and shot people at close range in what appears to be a policy targeting migrants and asylum seekers, including women and children. Human Rights Watch is accusing Saudi Arabia of killing hundreds of Ethiopian migrants and asylum seekers who've tried to cross the Yemen-Saudi border. We'll get the latest. Then we look at the 70th anniversary of the CIA and MI6-backed coup in Iran after Iran's democratically elected prime minister, Mohammad Mossadegh, nationalized Iran's oil industry. In 1953, the United States, together with Britain, participated in a coup in Iran that got rid of Mossadegh. Mossadegh and his government were swept from power in favor of General Zahidi. 300 killed and hundreds wounded is a conservative estimate. We'll speak to the Iranian filmmaker Taghi Amirani, who directed the documentary Coup 53, as well as Ervand Abrahamian, one of the leading historians of modern Iran. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. In Greece, the remains of at least 18 people believed to be asylum seekers were found in the Dajia Forest, where wildfires have been blazing for nearly a week. The dense forest is near the Turkish border in northeastern Greece, making it a common migration route for people fleeing Syria and other countries in the region with the hopes of reaching Europe. Blistering heat waves and dry and windy conditions have set off dozens of wildfires fires across Greece. Hundreds of firefighters have been deployed to fight the blazes, while hospitals and clinics are almost at capacity. This is a nurse in the city of Alexandropolis. I've been working for 27 years. I've never seen anything like this. It's like war conditions, really. Stretchers everywhere, patients here, IV drips there. We had to arrange them by clinic. We had to get them on their meds, their serums, everything. It was like a war, like a bomb had exploded. Countries across Europe are in the midst of yet another heat wave as temperatures hit or top 104 degrees Fahrenheit in Italy and France. Here in the United States, heat indexes have been approaching 130 degrees Fahrenheit in some areas as triple-digit temperatures scorch much of the Midwest, the Central Plains and southern states. Nearly 150 million people were under heat alerts Tuesday. Voters in Zimbabwe are casting ballots in nationwide elections today as President Emerson Mnangagwa and his ruling ZANU-PF party face another challenge from Nelson Chamisa. In 2018, Chamisa contested his loss to Mnangagwa, and six people were killed in post-election protests. Mnangagwa was previously a liberation fighter who came to power in 2017 after leading a coup that ousted Robert Mugabe. Chamisa has vowed to implement economic reforms and bring Zimbabwe out of isolation stemming from EU and U.S. sanctions over human rights concerns. Chamisa addressed supporters at a rally Sunday. Mr. Mnangagwa is not preparing to win. He's plotting to leak. I told Sadak that he stole the election in 2018, but this time I will not accept to allow him to steal the election again. The African Union has suspended Niger over the July 26 military coup. 
The AU also said it would, quote, evaluate the repercussions of possible military intervention by the West African bloc ECOWAS, but rejected any military action from outside the African continent. Earlier this week, ECOWAS rejected a three-year transition back to civilian rule proposed by the head of Niger's military junta, General Abdurrahman Chiani. The junta has received significant support from Nigerians following the coup. In Sudan, fighting between military and paramilitary forces over control of a key army base in the capital, Khartoum, continued for a third day Tuesday. Thousands have been killed and millions displaced since violence broke out more than four months ago. This comes as Save the Children says some 500 children, including two dozen babies who are under the care of a government-run orphanage in Khartoum, have died of hunger. The group also reported about 30,000 children no longer have access to medical treatment for malnutrition and other illnesses after the aid group was forced to shut down dozens of its nutrition centers due to the conflict in Sudan. Japan announced it'll start releasing radioactive wastewater from the Fukushima nuclear plant into the Pacific Ocean starting Thursday. The move has been condemned by a number of Pacific nations, including China. This is extremely selfish and irresponsible. China strongly urges the Japanese side to rectify its wrongful decision and withdraw its plan to discharge nuclear-contaminated water into the sea. Hong Kong and Macau said they'll impose a ban on seafood imports from 10 Japanese prefectures. Opponents in South Korea and Japan have ramped up protests since the plan was approved last month by the International Nuclear Agency. This is a protester in Tokyo. The nuclear disaster happened in Japan, and Japan should send a solid message to the world. But the government told the world that it's safe without showing a scientific evidence. That's really outrageous. In the future, the children will bear the burden and have health issues. In Cambodia, lawmakers officially elected Han Mane, the son of a long-standing outgoing prime minister, Hun Sen, to be the country's new leader. Hun Sen won re-election last month after eliminating any viable challengers and declared just days later his son would succeed him. Hamane is a military general. Analysts say Hun Sen is expected to keep wielding the bulk of Cambodian political power even as he transfers the premiership to his son. China, Russia and South Africa have called for expanding the ranks of BRICS membership as the group summits underway in Johannesburg, South Africa. BRICS currently is made up of Brazil, Russia, India, China and South Africa, but a number of countries from the global south have expressed interest in joining, including Saudi Arabia, Indonesia, Iran, Argentina and Egypt. The Brazilian president, Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva, addressed the summit Tuesday. I've been defending the idea of adopting a common trade currency for trade that won't replace our national currencies. We've already overtaken the G7 and are responsible for 32% of the world's GDP in purchasing power parity terms. Projections indicate that emerging, developing markets are the ones that will show the highest rate of growth in the coming years. Russia said three people were killed in drone strikes earlier today in Belgorod near the Ukrainian border. Separately, drone attacks continued in Moscow, with one hitting a high-rise building. Putin virtually addressed the BRICS summit today and blamed his 
invasion of Ukraine on Western powers attempting to preserve their hegemony. Meanwhile, the U.S. is urging American citizens in Belarus to leave immediately as tensions mount from the war in Ukraine. The U.S. Embassy in Minsk said citizens should avoid traveling to Belarus, citing the, quote, continued facilitation of Russia's unprovoked attack on Ukraine, the buildup of Russian military forces in Belarus, and the arbitrary enforcement of local laws, unquote. At least 16 people were killed and 36 wounded when a bus crashed into a freight truck in central Mexico Tuesday. Some of the injured are asylum seekers from Venezuela who are headed to the U.S. border for an appointment with Customs and Border Protection. The most recent reports say the majority of victims are Mexican nationals. Transportation accidents are a leading cause of death for asylum seekers traveling from Mexico's southern border to the U.S. In New Jersey, residents in Plainfield are calling for the resignation of a city planning board member after she threatened immigrant protesters with calling ICE, Immigration and Customs Enforcement, to have them deported. A live video recording posted on Facebook showed board member Carmencita Pyle asking questions about the immigration status of peaceful demonstrators who gathered at a street fair over the weekend, demanding Plainfield and state provide affordable housing. She's heard saying, quote, all you need is an ice truck. They'll all be running. The protesters, many of them families, were evicted from their homes earlier this month after their building was condemned due to hundreds of violations. The group Make the Road New Jersey said on social media, quote, immigrants in New Jersey deserve respect, dignity and safe homes, not deportation. Attorney John Eastman, a key figure in Donald Trump's bid to overturn the 2020 election, surrendered at the Fulton County Jail in Atlanta Tuesday. He's one of Trump's 18 co-defendants charged in Georgia's racketeering case. He spoke to reporters outside the jail, where he claimed he and Trump will be fully vindicated. Do you regret attaching your name to the former president? None whatsoever. The president calls and asks for representation. I think every citizen in my position should be willing to stand up for We've got a plan to representation. Are you, are you claiming you immunity from prosecution? I'm not answering that question. Trump has said he will surrender on Thursday. Former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows has asked a federal court to block his arrest in Georgia and transfer his case to federal court, claiming the charges stem from his position in the U.S. government. Meanwhile, the first Republican presidential debate is taking place this evening in Milwaukee. Eight candidates will take the stage. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, South Carolina Senator Tim Scott, former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley, entrepreneur Vivek Ramaswamy, former Vice President Mike Pence, former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie, North Dakota Governor Doug Burgum, and former Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson. Frontrunner Trump opted to skip the debate, citing his lead in the polls. He's also refused to sign an RNC pledge to support the eventual Republican nominee. A federal appeals court ruled in favor of an Alabama law banning gender-affirming care for trans youth, including providing hormone treatments and puberty blockers. The Trump-appointed three-judge panel overturned an injunction by a lower court against the ban. All major medical groups have backed gender-affirming care, which is considered life-saving for many. In related news, a federal judge partially blocked a law banning transgender health care for minors in Georgia. The ruling says the ban on medical professionals providing patients with hormone therapy is likely unconstitutional. 
Also in Georgia, the Cobb County School Board in Atlanta voted last week to fire a longtime teacher who read the book My Shadow is Purple, which is about gender fluidity and inclusiveness to her fifth grade students. The ACLU says 230 anti-LGBTQIA education laws have been advanced across the United States this year. And in Atlanta, the family of a man who died earlier this month after police tased him is demanding accountability and for the video of his encounter with police to be released. Johnny Holman, a 62-year-old black grandfather and church deacon, was hit by another driver as he was headed home. When the police showed up, they ended up handcuffing and tasing Holman, who later died at the hospital. Atlanta Mayor Andre Dickens has ordered a full investigation into his death. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. Coming up, Human Rights Watch is accusing Saudi Arabia of killing hundreds of Ethiopian migrants and asylum seekers who've tried to cross the Yemeni-Saudi border. We'll get the latest. Stay with us. <laughs> This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman in New York, joined by Democracy Now! co-host Juan Gonzalez in Chicago. Hi, Juan. Hi, Amy, and welcome to all of our listeners and viewers across the country and around the world. The Ethiopian government says it plans to investigate a report that border guards in Saudi Arabia have killed hundreds of Ethiopian migrants and asylum seekers who've tried to cross the Yemen-Saudi border since March 2022. In a statement Tuesday, Ethiopia's foreign ministry called the deaths a, quote, alleged mass execution and said it'll conduct the probe, quote, in tandem with the Saudi authorities. This comes after Human Rights Watch published a damning new report that documents the killings and calls for them to cease immediately. The report cites firsthand accounts from 42 people, over 100 verified videos and photos, and an analysis of satellite imagery. This is an excerpt of a video accompanying the report, a warning. It contains graphic descriptions and images. Even when I remember, I cry. I saw a guy calling for help. He lost both his legs. He was screaming and saying, are you leaving me here? Please don't leave me. We couldn't help him because we were running for our lives. Ethiopian migrants and asylum seekers have been tortured, injured, 
or killed by Saudi Arabian border guards at the Yemen-Saudi border. At least hundreds have been killed trying to make this crossing between March 2022 and June 2023. When Saudi border guards see a group, they fire continuously. When they kill everyone, they go down to collect all those who didn't die. This is what happened to me. I survived, and they came to meet me and showed me the dead. Then they took us to a detention center and beat us all there. Human Rights Watch's extensive investigation includes first-hand accounts from 42 people and the verification and geolocation of over 100 videos and photos and the analysis of hundreds of square kilometers of satellite imagery. We found evidence that Saudi border guards have used explosive weapons and shot people at close range in what appears to be a policy targeting migrants and asylum seekers, including women and children, at the border. Human Rights Watch believes this may amount to crimes against humanity. Saudi Arabia's border forces should stop intentionally using lethal force to kill Ethiopian migrants and asylum seekers with explosive weapons. That's part of a video accompanying the new Human Rights Watch report titled, They Fired on Us Like Rain. In a minute, we'll speak with the report's author. First, this is a man in Ethiopia named Mustafa Sofian Mohammed, who lost his leg after being shot at while attempting to cross into Saudi Arabia. Two years ago, I went to Saudi via Djibouti, thinking I would find a job to change my family and my life. I came back to my family empty-handed, with only one leg. We were 45 in number, and only three survived. Of that, I am sure. I called them all and managed to speak to three of them. The rest are unreachable. The rest, only God knows what happened to them. They were firing non-stop, and I thought the sky was falling on me. I cannot describe how shocking the sound was. Bullets came from our back and front. I thought I was dreaming at first. I couldn't believe my eyes. I looked around and landed my eyes again at it and knew I had no leg anymore. I started praying, lying there. My fellow Ethiopians planning to go to Saudi, please look at me. There is a rain of bullets waiting for you. Look at me and learn. We're joined right now by the report's author, Nadia Hardman, a researcher in the Refugee and Migrants' Rights Division of Human Rights Watch. Nadia, welcome to Democracy Now!, a devastating report. Um, talk about how you learned of this um, and explain further what has taken place over the last year. Yeah, thank you so much for having me on the program. Um, look, I've been documenting this route, the eastern route that's not very well known, of predominantly Ethiopian migrants that are uh, leaving from the Horn of Africa through Yemen, uh, facilitated by uh, smuggling and trafficking network networks that are extremely abusive in themselves uh, to the border with Saudi Arabia, trying to cross and access job opportunities, um, you know, in, in the country. We know that over 750,000 Ethiopians actually do live and work in Saudi Arabia. So there are job opportunities they're trying to get to. Um, in the past, I'd say since 2014, we have documented border killings by Saudi border guards, but these were infrequent and occasional. Generally, the pattern previously was one of mass detentions in horrifying detention centers inside Saudi Arabia and then deportations 
back to Ethiopia. What we found in this report, and I'd say really it's an escalation um, from the last two years, is a complete change in, in policy from occasional shootings to widespread and systematic attacks, use of explosive weapons against large groups of unarmed migrants and asylum seekers, many of them are women and kids, or shootings at close range of smaller groups trying to cross into the country. And, you know, we've also supplemented, you know, the, the many testimonies that I collected with a massive digital investigation where we were able to analyze kilometers of satellite imagery, posts, Saudi border, uh, Saudi border guard posts all along that route to show that the Saudis knew or should have known that they were firing on migrants and asylum seekers from Ethiopia. We found burial sites that have increased over the research period that I conducted. Um, and we've also geolocated videos um, of dead and wounded migrants that I think you probably saw in the video that was just screened. And uh, Nadia, I wanted to ask you, Ethiopia is one of the largest countries in uh, in Africa in terms of population, second only to Nigeria, about 125 million people. Uh, you mentioned 750,000 approximately uh, Ethiopians are working in Saudi Arabia. What is driving uh, the uh, those who are fleeing the country? What are the conditions in Ethiopia that they face? Yeah. I mean, it's a good question. And honestly, the, the, the reasons have remained steady over the years. The, the conflicts and the you know locality of those conflicts have changed. Um, we know that the conflict in northern Ethiopia has driven a lot of the, the Tigrayans that I interviewed. Um, and then extreme poverty. You know, most people um, who I spoke to who, who left said that they were you know desperate to try and access a better life in, in Saudi Arabia. And they know Ethiopians working there. Um, you know, there are, you know, there is a diaspora inside Saudi Arabia living and working, um, you know, I don't know if it's successfully, but generally they're making a living. There's also this, this criminal network of smugglers and traffickers that do prey in, on and exploit um, Ethiopians that potentially don't know what awaits them. You know, I heard a figure that over 50% didn't know that there was a conflict inside Yemen. Um, I certainly don't think they understand potentially the, the brutality they may face. I spoke to women and girls that were sexually assaulted by other migrants and their traffickers you know, during the journey and then had to undergo the, the killings that they witnessed um, when they tried to cross the border. And, and what's been the response of the Ethiopian and Saudi governments, especially in Saudi Arabia? Uh, is, has there been basically a change of policy from the top and, and the government in dealing with migrants coming into the country? Okay, a lot of, um, you know, the questions I get on this, you know, my responses are, are generally conjecture because we haven't had a direct um, engagement with the Saudi authorities on this. Um, we did uh, receive a reply from the Houthi forces who are also implicated in our report because they facilitate access uh, to the border of smugglers and traffickers. So they're helping people get there. Um, but from the Saudi authorities, no, we, we wrote a list of questions and we put our findings to the authorities well over three weeks ago um, with a long list of questions and we did not receive a reply. Anything that I've seen recently in the last few days since we released the report has been replies to journalists and this new uh, joint investigation that was announced, you know, we've we've not received any um, statement on that. That's what, again, a general statement that's been put out. Um, you know, I would definitely cast doubt on the independence of an investigation conducted by Ethiopia and Saudi Arabia. I don't know of a single credible investigation that the Saudi authorities have conducted on the 
just massive violations that they have committed against uh, Ethiopian migrants and other migrants, for that matter, inside uh, the country. And I don't have any, um, I don't have any faith that they would conduct an independent investigation on these mass killings. I would also point out that the UN, in the form of its um, independent rapporteurs, wrote to Saudi Arabia last year, and these letters were made public in October, outlining similar abuses um, to ours. And Saudi Arabia responded in March of this year, in 2023, and said that they found no evidence of any of the kind of allegations that were listed there. I think we have already shown that Saudi Arabia is unwilling and unable to conduct any kind of meaningful investigation. And we need that for the victims um, and especially redress for them. Nadia, your report clearly finds systemic um, attacks and killings of, um, of those crossing the border. Can you talk more about Saudi border guards firing explosive weapons at migrants who'd just been released? from temporary Saudi detention. Yeah. I mean, this was actually the last case that I interviewed. Um, I mean, I generally interviewed a practice of, you know, uh, Saudi border guards collecting the survivors. So people would, you know, undergo an explosive weapon attack. You know, um, pe people said they were fired at by mortar projectiles. Um, so deeply traumatized. And then they would be um, and injured uh, much of the time approached and um, by Saudi border guards who would then temporarily detain them in detention centers, which were also abusive and they experience ill treatment and torture inside them and obviously no medical assistance or care. But this one case that is really, um, it's the last case I, I interviewed is this woman um, crossed the border, was detained by Saudi border guards who took her to a detention facility for eight months. She was then released and pushed back towards the Yemeni border. And then her and her group were fired on by an explosive weapon. So she was literally fleeing back into Yemen and her group sustained um, this attack and 20, she witnessed 20 people killed. Um, she then also sent me a photograph of the, of the wound that she had, the gaping wound on the side of her face that she suffered because of the, of shrapnel, she said, um, that flew at her face. And I think that's a, that's also shown in our, uh, in our video, I believe. And where are the weapons from, Nadia? So look, one thing you know we 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 don't know is um, who is manufacturing the weapons and exactly what is being used. Again, we we asked um, Saudi Arabia you know a list of questions about this. Um, we did find you know Saudi border guard posts and we found a um, you know vehicles where we believe um, there's machinery mounted on top of them. You can't see much from satellite imagery. Um, so we're going on a lot of witness testimony. But one thing we did do is send the pictures that individuals I interviewed sent me, you know, graphic images and video footage. And we sent that to some external forensic experts who confirmed that the images are consistent with explosive weapons use and um, show evidence of fragmentation, shrapnel, burns, uh, burn scars. So, you know, we're confident that um, explosive weapons are used, you know, and obviously the question as to who's making them, where are they from, exactly what is being used is something that we want to investigate further and ask the Saudis particularly to to come forward with this. And do you know if the mass killing is continuing? Yeah, I continue to receive reports that um, the killings are ongoing. I'm not investigating right now because we put out the report, but it's extremely distressing to, to know that this is continuing to this day. And that's our constant and immediate call uh, to Saudi Arabia to cease 
um, killing uh, Ethiopian migrants and, and asylum seekers at its border and to implore other governments um, to put pressure on Saudi Arabia. There's a menu of recommendations that we have that states could you know, implement um, to ensure that this there is accountability for these horrendous crimes. Nadia Hardman, want to thank you for being with us, author of the new Human Rights Watch report titled They Fired on Us Like Rain. Uh, Nadia is a researcher in the Refugee and Migrants' Rights Division of Human Rights Watch. We'll link to that report at democracynow.org. Coming up, it's the 70th anniversary of the CIA MI6-backed coup in Iran, 1953. Stay with us. <laughs> Silence of the Night by Mohammad Reza Shajaran. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. We turn now to look at this 70th anniversary of an event that reshaped the Middle East, the 1953 U.S. and U.K.-backed coup in Iran that overthrew Iran's democratically elected prime minister, Mohammad Mossadegh. The aftershocks of the coup are still being felt today. The coup came two years after Mossadegh nationalized Iran's oil industry. He argued Iran should begin profiting from its vast oil reserves, which had been exclusively controlled by the Anglo-Iranian Oil Company. The company later became known as British Petroleum, BP. The coup was led in part by a CIA agent named Kermit Roosevelt, the grandson of President Theodore Roosevelt. The crushing of Iran's first democratic government ushered in more than two decades of dictatorship under the Shah, who relied heavily on U.S. aid and arms. The anti-American backlash that toppled the Shah in 1979 shook the whole region. In a moment, we'll be joined by two guests who've researched the coup for years. But first, we turn to the trailer of the documentary Coup, Nine, coup 53. In 1953, the United States, together with Britain, participated in a coup in Iran that got rid of Mossadegh. Mossadegh and his government were swept from power in favor of General Zahidi. 300 killed and hundreds wounded is a conservative estimate. The British government has never officially acknowledged its role in the coup. I don't think at any time we really planned a coup d'etat. These words have not been heard or seen for over 34 years. 
evidence that has the potential to turn a dark chapter in history inside out. Your British counterpart was in fact blank. Could you tell me something about the man blank? Norman Derbyshire, take one. He was somebody who felt that there were things to be said that hadn't been said. A member of the British government was involved in the assassination of the chief of police. How did it come to this? So they tied him up, strangled him and shot him. Were you involved in Afshar II's assassination? Yes. My father is a real prime minister. <laughs> The coup in Iran is shaping politics to this day. The United States does not want democracy in the Middle East. That's the trailer of the documentary Coup 53, directed by the Iranian filmmaker Taghi Amirani, who's joining us now. He made the film with the Oscar-winning filmmaker Walter Murch. We're also joined by Yervan Abrahamian. He's a retired professor of history at City University of New York, Baruch College. His most recent book is titled Oil Crisis in Iran, From Nationalism to Coup d'État, the author of several books, including The Coup, 1953, The CIA, and The Roots of Modern U.S.-Iran Relations. We are talking about an event 70 years ago that has shaped not only the Middle East— but I think you could say geopolitics in the world today. Um, Ervand Abrahamian, if you can start off by talking about the significance of this moment—I mean, a year after the same model would be used to overthrow um, the democratically elected leader in Guatemala—but what happened, why the United States and Britain were so hell-bent on toppling democracy in Iran? Well, the official argument that is constantly repeated was it was to save Iran from uh, communism and the Soviet threat. In reality, when you look at the documents, there was no communist threat or Soviet interest in Iran. The main concern of United States was that if nationalization in Iran of oil was successful, this would set a terrible example to other countries where U.S. oil interests were uh, present, countries such as Kuwait, uh, Saudi Arabia, Venezuela, Indonesia. So the, the, the nightmare in Washington was that if you have a successful nationalization in Iran, this would be a contagious disease that would spread throughout the world, and this would change the whole balance of power. Uh, and this was really the main interest. But of course, American politicians don't want to uh, admit that economic issues are at, at play with their foreign policy. So they they underplayed this. They never mentioned this publicly. What they insisted was the, the so-called uh, communist threat. The British, in fact, were quite honest about this. They said they used the bogey of communism uh, to basically uh, persuade people that the, uh, the, the coup was justifiable. But, uh, Professor, when you say there was no communist threat uh, to take over the country, but there certainly was a vibrant uh, uh, communist party uh, in Iran at the time, the Tudor Party, which backed nationalization, even though it also opposed uh, Mossadegh. 
Dag, on, on a bunch of issues. Uh, wasn't the attempt of the United States to use and actually, as I understand it, some of the some of the documents revealed uh, recently show that uh, the uh, the British and the U.S. actually tried to to stir up the population in Iran against the communists by actually backing false flag operations in the weeks before the overthrow. They did that. But, you know, the two day party was, you can say, had its strength in the factories, in the street. You can dem- they de- organized strikes, demonstrations. But people in Washington, people like Roosevelt, the Dulles, Eisenhower, were hard nosed realists. They knew that there's a difference between you know, organizing a demonstration in, <laughs> in Tehran to carrying out a revolution or a coup. And the, the, the CIA reports from Tehran, these are the actual CIA analysts for, on the ground, they said that the two day party was not a threat. Uh, it wasn't even prepared for. For a coup, it wasn't talking and thinking of a coup, and it uh, even the the, the readings that the, was required for two-day party members in in 1953 was uh, Lenin's work on ultra-leftism, infantile leftism. So a, a communist party was thinking about a coup or a revolution would not be using Lenin's infantile leftism as a main. Uh, uh, instruction book. So th- there was, this was an imagined threat. And uh, they, of course, the press, especially the New York Times, played up with this. They exaggerated the uh, two-day strength, the, the size of their demonstrations, in order to create the mood in the American public that there was actually a major, uh, a major threat coming from the left in Iran. Turn to an excerpt from Coup 53, where we see our other guest, the filmmaker Taghi Amirani, as he meets with Malcolm Byrne at the National Security Archive. I am the deputy director and research director at the National Security Archive, which is a non-governmental organization based at George Washington University. There are at least three internal histories Mm -hmm. that the CIA has produced in probably the late 1970s. One of these items was produced. Is this when you write to them asking for information? Well, this is the response letter to me saying we're enclosing this document that you requested. And then here's the document itself called the Battle for Iran. The Battle for Iran, which is still going on. This is what's new about this release, covert action. Uh In earlier versions, which you'll see, this is all blotted out. Keep that out. So we can take this one out. There's still a lot that's not there. I like the fact that there's still a lot of blank pages. They're supposed to show you what was there. Right. What was new was essentially this page. Mm -hmm. The military coup that overthrew Mossadegh and his National Front Cabinet was carried out under CIA direction. They had never, to my knowledge, officially acknowledged their role. Right. In the coup. I'm standing in front of a filing cabinet of a drawer full of documents that essentially changed the fate of my country and changed my fate. Mm-hmm. You know, what, what happened to me, what happened to my family. My, 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 it's just like how your lives, your destiny, your fate is yeah. encapsulated. Yeah, in a half a file drawer. In a half file. This is it. This, this just changed Iran. This, this box mm-hmm. of papers. Mm-hmm. 
In this next clip from Coup 53, Taghi Amirani reads from the interview transcripts he found with the MI6 spy Norman Derbyshire that were done for the British TV series End of Empire. Excellent. If we want the coup in detail, and even if not, why did they select bits of interview from him, cut it out, paste it into a script, probably edit it into the film? But he didn't make the final cut. He's not in the finished film. In a remarkable stroke of luck, we've discovered that the British Film Institute archive hold all the unused footage from the End of Empire Iran episode. Freely available to the public, but never digitized until now. 36 cans of film, 520 minutes of interview, among which we hope to find Norman Derbyshire. And it's recording. Great. We digitized the entire collection of End of Empire given to us by the BFI. We did not find Norman Derbyshire. And in this clip from Coup 53, Taghi Amirani goes through the photographs and film clips he accessed from End of Empire, the British TV series about the end of the British Empire, as he searched for footage of the MI6 spy, Norman Derbyshire. British Embassy staff photograph, Tehran, class of 1952. And this is Norman Derbyshire. Looking very much the cool undercover spy. Derbyshire would have been 29 when this photograph was taken. He was born on the 1st of October, 1924. And he died on the 17th of June, 1993. His CIA counterpart was Stephen Mead. We found his can of film, even though he's not in the finished film. Stephen Mead on Iran. This is what End of Empire production team thought of Stephen Mead. A young 69, hatchet-faced, like a bit part player in a B-movie thriller, and above all, good. This is brilliant. Wow. Your British counterpart was in fact blank. Could you tell me something about the man blank? Your British counterpoint was, in fact, Norman Derbyshire. Could you yes. tell us something about the man, Norman Derbyshire? Oh, I didn't know him at all before I met him. What kind of a man was blank? What kind of a man was Norman Derbyshire? What kind of a man was Norman Derbyshire? And why has his name been blanked out in these documents? And in this clip from Coup 53... The actor Ray Fiennes reenacts the part of the Norman Derbyshire interview transcript found after he was interviewed, but did not appear in the End of Empire series. Norman Derbyshire, take one. What you're about to see here as the team sets up at the Savoy is the result of our failure to find any film or audio of the Derbyshire interview. So we've resorted to bringing his words to life. Oh, there it is. Okay. 
Rafe Fiennes is about to speak Derbyshire's words recorded back in 1983, telling us things the British didn't want anyone to hear. And these are the bits that the people who made the original documentary loved, which is also what we love. Sorry, I'm getting drawn into the... (laughs) (laughs) Just imagine how I felt when I came across it. It was one late night in the office. Again, a clip from Coup 53. Tagi Amirani was an Iranian physicist who became a filmmaker and directed this documentary, Coup 53, released August 19th, 2019, the anniversary of the U.S.-backed, MI6-backed, or I should say created, coup that overthrew the democratically elected leader of Iran. Um, This is— an astounding documentary. This is uh, a documentary, Tagi, the likes of which we rarely see. Um, if people are wondering why Ray Fiennes is in it, the famous actor, it's because he was replacing the uh, cutout words of this uh British spy. If you can talk about what Derbyshire means in terms of British history in Iran, and also, on the U.S. side, Kermit Roosevelt, who will later talk quite honestly about how he went on behalf of the Dulles brothers, right, uh, John Foster Dulles and Alan Dulles, the head of the CIA and the State Department, uh, John Foster Dulles, who had represented um, uh, corporations interested uh, in overthrowing democracies, and overthrew Mossadegh. Uh, thank you so much. It's a pleasure to join you, and I'm delighted that you find the film astounding. And if it's astounding, it's entirely due to Walter Murch and the incredible cast of interviewees, including Professor Abrahamian, along with Stephen Kinzer and David Talbot and Malcolm Byrne, who were the backbone of commentary and knowledgeable information on the coup. Uh, in the absence of the British official admission to their leading role in this coup, Norman Derbyshire's interview and its transcript stands in for that admission. Imagine you making a film about the most important, pivotal event in your country's history, which didn't just affect Iran, but the region and the world, as we've we've discussed and we will discuss more. And you find the man who was essentially the writer and director of this coup, in his own words, uh, revealing the most incredible amount of detail, going rogue for whatever reason. We can speculate of, of, as to why he went rogue as the leading MI6 officer in charge of the coup, giving this incredible interview and then vanishing. And for whatever reason, the End of Empire producers, Brian Lapping, Norma Percy, uh, Mark Anderson and Alison Roper could not or did not use this interview in any form in their film. We got lucky. I got lucky. I'm not the world's best documentary maker, but I am the luckiest in the team I got together, the interviewees I managed to persuade to appear, and just a lucky break to come across this transcript, which was, ironically, in the basement of Mossadegh's grandson in Paris until I showed up and found it by chance. Uh, And my mind just blew by the level of revelation and staggering amount of detail. Uh, Tagi Amirani, I wanted to ask you uh, the lessons for today, especially for people in other parts of the world about these coups, is the way that the British government and the U.S. government 
often try to uh, mask their actions uh, by promoting so-called demonstrations or uh, uprisings in the street against uh, uh, governments that they wanted overthrown. Particularly, I think, in the Iranian situation, the use of uh, uh, radical Islamic clerics. Uh, uh, for instance, there was at the time uh, an Ayatollah Kashami, uh, uh, who had been uh, Kashani, who had been a collaborator with the, the Nazis during World War II, but then was utilized by the British. Uh, uh, and the Americans to stir up protest against the Mossadegh regime. And, of course, there was a young cleric, uh, 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 Khomeini, a follower of Kashami, who was in the street protesting against Mossadegh at the time. Could you talk about how the use of uh, the uh, by the United States and the British, because, of course, they went on to do it in Afghanistan against Sadat in Egypt and others, to use radical Islamic clerics as a means to attack modernists or progressive political leaders? My enemy's enemy is always my friend. And in fact, Ayatollah Kashani was very much on Mossadegh's side. They were, they were working together uh, in trying to nationalize oil and stand up to the British. They parted ways uh, in July uh, 1952 in, in, in a huge demonstration when Mossadegh resigned uh, because he wanted to uh, have more control in the executive power and wanted the Shah to be just a simple sim symbolic monarch. Uh, but they parted ways because in Kashani's eyes, Mossadegh was a hungry dictator and trying to keep too much control in his hands. Um, the, the melting pot of the currents against Mossadegh was multifaceted. The, 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 the mob was created, the, the, the religious community turned against him. Uh, of course, uh, agents were on the ground. Bribery was obviously a key point. The press were bought. These are the key ingredients of any coups. And, and once you've got those key elements in place, including assassination of key allies, uh, it's a repeat and rinse process. Uh, uh, I'm I don't have information of uh, Ayatollah Khomeini, a young Khomeini, being in the crowd, but I know in Oliver Stone's series, uh, The Secret History of the United States, or The Untold History of the United States, it is mentioned. Uh, but there is a lot of debate about the, the conflict between Kashani and, uh, and Khomeini, I'm sorry, uh, Kashani and uh, Mossadegh. He certainly expressed delight uh, at the fall of Mossadegh post-coup, uh, and he had ambitions about being the leader of the Muslim world, not just in Iran. Uh, but Mossadegh had his, has his, had his, he'd written his own death sentence the moment he nationalized oil. The British decided he had to go that moment. In fact, we have people in our interviews uh, from End of Empire saying the moment he came into office, we knew we had to get rid of him. Uh, the, the bogeyman of communism was exactly that. We have documents which uh, we will put out in our new sequel. We are making a coda about what happened to Coup 53 since its release called Coup 53.1. And in that, we will show these documents where the Americans are discussing with the British uh, whether they'll come in and join the coup. And they're discussing share of the oil, basically saying, yeah, we'll help you if you can have a slice of you know, Iranian oil, which is exactly what happened post-coup in the consortium that was formed. Uh, in which the American oil companies walked away with 40%. Um, and so, yeah, uh, it's still debated. It's still a hot topic. Of course, the impact's still with us. We're living with the consequences of the coup. And, uh, and it, of course, it emboldened the CIA 
to go out and do it again in Guatemala. In fact, this year we are marking the 50th anniversary of the Chilean coup. Uh, Pinochet replacing Allende, like the Shah replaced Mossadegh. Uh, history is not the past. The past is not the past. And we're still living with the ripples of this disastrous event. Tagi Amirani, if you can talk about specifically the U.S. role, you have this fascinating interview. What is it? Um, uh, the interview with Kermit Roosevelt, uh, Teddy Roosevelt's grandson, who is an official within the CIA, says he takes a couple suitcases filled with money, a million dollars, but actually it only cost him 60000 uh, But talk about what he did in Iran and doing this at the behest of the British. It was um, uh, Anglo-Iranian oil now, BP. Uh, Iran had thrown out the British, seeing Mossadegh realize that the British were fomenting a coup. So they called on uh, the U.S., and ultimately it would be under Eisenhower that they would overthrow Iran. Yeah. See, I grew up, we all grew up with the story of the CIA coup run by Kermit Roosevelt. As Professor Abrahamian puts it very eloquently in our film, Kermit didn't speak Persian. He was only in Iran for three weeks. He didn't know Iran at all. He was more of a bagman uh, and an adventurist. Uh, and he was allowed to go and take credit for the coup. He wrote books about it. He was on chat shows, talk shows. Uh, he had contracts. He had audiences with the Shah. He did really well out of this coup. And, and Derbyshire, uh, as Ray Fiennes tells us in a brilliant interview in The New Yorker, essentially wanted his curtain call. He wanted to reclaim credit for what was his show. <laughs> in fact, uh, just last week, uh, there was a huge profile of Derbyshire in The uh, in the Guardian by Julian Borger, the foreign affairs editor of The Guardian, uh, went into great detail about his life and his motives. And, uh, uh, and so this is essentially partly professional rivalry. I do all the hard work. Derbyshire was in Iran from the age of 19 as a soldier. He spoke probably better Persian than me. He knew the Iranian street. He really understood the psyche of the Iranian mob, as he says in, 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 the, in the interview in our film. He knows how to turn them, uh, what, pre what buttons to press. Uh, this was a Derbyshire project. Uh, and and as, as we talked about earlier, the British wanted their oil back. This coup was always about oil. It's always about oil. Iraq was about oil. Venezuela is about oil. It's always about oil. As, as the great Robert Fisk said, um, if Iraq's only export was turnips, we wouldn't be there. Uh, and so Derbyshire is the main star of this film. For whatever reason, he didn't appear. We got lucky. We found him. We got lucky. We got Ray Fiennes to be his avatar. Uh, and uh, everything that happened to Coup 53, the, the, the incentive for me making this film is the British have not officially admitted to their key role, their leading role. This was an MI6 coup aided by the CIA, who was dragged in. It was a new organization in 1953. It was the first time it went off campus to play, and it did well. You know, it, it, it was quick, it was cheap, and no Americans were killed. A few hundred Iranians died, but who cares about that? So it emboldened them to do, to do it again. And it was, you know, there's a letter from uh, Alan Dulles to Kermit uh, after he comes back from Iran saying, have a great weekend. Come in on Monday. I've got some other ideas. Uh, obviously, Guatemala coming up. Um, 
there was one other thing I had to say. Kermit Roosevelt, uh, in, in, in not really being an expert, given the, 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 the playing field to write his book and, 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 and give that interview uh, to as the, the clip that we see in the film where he says, I had a million, I'd spent 60,000. He gives another interview and says, he says, I had 700,000, I only spent 10,000. I wouldn't take anything Kermit Roosevelt says at face value as the truth. Uh, he, he was a fabricator of stuff and a self-aggrandizing guy. And that, I can see, will also not sit well with Derbyshire. You know, Kermit just spewing out different stories about how much money he spent. Derbyshire says in his interview, uh, we, we, you know, the coup cost £700,000. I know because I spent it. Yeah, I'd like to bring in a Professor Abrahamian uh, uh, into the conversation again. Professor, this whole issue of the change in administrations in the United States, because the the nationalization happened uh, during the Truman administration. But uh, President Truman was reluctant uh, to intervene, according to some accounts. It was only when uh, Eisenhower came in and, of course, the Dulles brothers uh, uh, as part of his administration that the coup went uh, uh, moved forward as far as the United States was concerned. Could you talk about the change in administrations and also the impact on Iran uh, subsequent to the coup, uh, of course, leading up to eventually the Iranian revolution of 1979? Yes, I mean, the conventional view is, as you said, it's that the, the Truman uh, the Democratic administration was willing to negotiate and deal with Mossadegh. It was the Republican Eisenhower administration that carried out the coup. Um, the trouble is, if you look at the documents, right from the beginning, as soon as Mossadegh was elected prime minister and nationalized, the Americans, as um, at that time, the Truman administration was just as eager to actually get rid of Mossadegh. It was not a, they weren't thinking about a coup. They were thinking of a political means of getting rid of him. In fact, they asked the Shah to dismiss him. They misunderstood the Iranian constitution. The Shah didn't have the power to, to dismiss him. So right from beginning, uh, the Truman administration was really trying to ease the Mossadegh out. Uh, but the interesting thing is, the reason for that was not because they were against coups. It was much more uh, surprisingly the Shah's reluctance to carry out a coup. The Shah, right in 51, said that if I go against Mossadegh and oil nationalization, I will delegitimize my monarchy, the whole uh, of my authority. I cannot do that. And he was the one who was very reluctant to carry out the coup. Uh, and the, we have 30 uh, the, seconds, Professor. Right. The, 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 uh, what the uh, Truman administration really wanted to do was get rid of Mossadegh through the political process. It was only when that failed that uh, the, the new administration then actually put into effect a military coup. We want to thank you both for being with us. Yervan Abrahamian, retired professor of history at the City University of New York, most recent book, Oil Crisis in Iran, From Nationalism to Coup d'État, and Taghi Amirani, the Iranian filmmaker, director of Coup 53. Everyone should see it. 
This is the 70th anniversary of the coup in Iran. A very happy birthday to Julie Crosby. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez.